This episode is sponsored by Bow Lake, the most beautiful paddle boards in the world. Visit bowlake.com and learn more. That's B-E-A-U lake.com. Bow is French for beautiful. B-E-A-U lake.com. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Moed Hennessy is the wines and spirits division of luxury goods leader LVMH. The company has some of the world's most exceptional champagnes, wines, and spirits, including Hennessy Cognac, the largest producer of cognac in the world, an unparalleled collection of champagne brands that include Moet and Chandon, Krug, Dom Perignon, and Verve Clicquot, as well as spirits brands such as Belvedere, Glenmorangie, and Ardbeg. My guest on the luxury item is John Gerhardt, head of global branding and creative for Moet Hennessy. In his role, Gerhardt advises the CEO and the head of M&A on how to leverage branding and creative to increase the value of the $5 billion portfolio of Moet Hennessy's 27 Maisons. John Gerhardt has spent over 25 years as a recognized innovator in the luxury industry. In fact, Time Magazine recognized Gerhardt within its Style and Design 100 when he was creative director of Canada-based luxury department store Holt Renfrew. John's accomplishments have positioned him as an international force within luxury branding and creative direction. Welcome to The Luxury Item, John. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, John, you've established yourself as a retailing visionary who has navigated the luxury industry for the last 25 years, holding positions at some of the most respected North American and global luxury retailers. I think a great place to start is if you can talk about your professional background before helming global branding and creator for Moet Hennessy. So my background, um, fresh out of university, was taking on a retail job at a company called Parachute uh, in Toronto, where I quickly escalated to a managerial position. Um, And Parachute was a bit of a maverick in its day. Um, This was back in the mid-80s, and when Comme des Garçons and Yoji Yamamoto were really kind of making their way into fashion. And Parachute was a Canadian company held helmed by um, a British um, retailer and an American architect. Um, And they put together this Japanese-esque clothing line that did very well with a lot of celebrities. So I headed up the the retail operation in Toronto. From there, I went to New York and I did some freelance um, writing and sittings for Fairchild under one of their titles, DNR, came back to Canada, where I established myself within a freelance creative direction capacity and worked for a number of advertising clients, primarily the Bay and Eaton's uh, department stores within Canada. And from there, I started to um, take um, a position with a Canadian fashion magazine for women called Flair Magazine. And I went back to media and um, I was there for a number of years, and then Holt Renfrew found me at Flair Magazine. And at Holt Renfrew, I uh, embarked on a seven-year journey with them as a creative director, uh, overseeing all visuals, overseeing the brand, overseeing anything to do with the aesthetic of, of the company. And when you were creative director at Canadian luxury department store, Holt Renfrew, you made Time Magazine's The Design 100 list, uh, a really prestigious honor, and it was for the visual displays around the holiday windows. 
Can you talk a little bit about that Windows project? First of all, being credited in Time Magazine was a huge honor, probably one of the milestones in my career. But um, those windows were, were quite, quite fantastic in its day. We didn't ever want to do anything typical in relation to windows. And this was a holiday window that we did. So we wanted to do something rather unconventional for the holidays. And Dior had just had celebrated their 60th anniversary. And we were greatly inspired by Galliano's collection. So we decided that we would take the Dior Couture collection and bring it to life as much as we could within the context of the windows. Um, so it was an homage to Dior. But within that, it was all snow laden and um, and covered in, in kind of Christmas um, within a la Dior. And Dior that season had done this fluorescent kind of day glow collection, couture collection. So we took the, the colors of that, put it against kind of the white background of Canadian Christmas. And within the seven windows that covered Bloor Street at Holt Renfrew, we literally um, portrayed the process of what goes into a couture collection. Everything from the sketching, to the fittings, to the tailoring, to the runway show, to all of these different vignettes um, that took over Bloor Street. And then just to kind of cap it off, we brought in Aretha Franklin wow. um, that evening as well um, to open up the windows and, and kind of commemorate them. But yeah, they were they were fantastic windows. And we we always looked at those windows, which were our flagship in Toronto, as one big storyboard, one big mood board, and looked at how we could exercise the horizontal nature of them to become a bit of a narrative on the street. And I've always wanted to ask this question, can you measure how much value a well-designed window display adds to a store? Well, I think you you probably can in, in the form of footfall, if if you know, if that's your your impetus. But in some ways, I, I think you know, windows are immeasurable in their visceral capacity. Um, I, I think windows, they're they're a bit of a lost art form, unfortunately, especially from a multi-brand standpoint. But your windows are your cover, your windows are your editorial, your windows are your art to the commerce. Um I, I think they you know, whether it's 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 a cerebral connection or a visceral connection, or but it's certainly an emotional connection of some sort. But I think your windows are paramount to the experience. They're the first experience typically that the consumer has with your brand. So, um, you know, when I kind of look at the landscape now, it, it's it's rather void in terms of in terms of that art form, which I think is unfortunate. But I think they're they're critical to a great brand experience. And after you were at Holt Renfrew, you joined LVMH-owned luxury travel retailer DFS Group's Tea Galleria Boutiques to head up branding and creative in both Hong Kong and New York locations. One of the things you were tasked with was to rebrand and reposition the luxury duty-free retailer giant. Was the rebranding due to the growing competition with online luxury discount retailers at the time? Um, not so much, Scott, to be honest. I, I think there were other kind of threats and, and opportunities within that rebranding that we did. First of all, they, um, I was recruited to LVMH from, from Holt Renfrew because I took over the rebranding um, when I began my career at Holt Renfrew. But when I came into DFS, um, DFS is, is a giant, as you may know. Yeah. Um, it has, you know, 500 stores. It has you know, 700 brands. I mean, it, it's global in its scope. 
but DFS um, is made up of two models, um, one being downtown department stores, uh, primarily in Asia, and the other being airport stores. And even though they both carry the same value proposition of being duty-free, they kind of had their, their individual challenges. With the, the department stores, the downtown stores, it was really about, you know, yes, the value proposition is duty-free, but there's a luxury quotient as well. And, and in some ways, we wanted to change the, the perceived value of the brand, you know, and not just kind of um, hang it under the banner of duty-free. So we rebranded it to, um, to brand it kind of as a travel retail experience, not so much as a duty-free experience. Even though duty-free is the value proposition, travel retail was really the offer. With the airport stores, it was another kind of challenge whereby, as I said, you know, we have a number of stores, whether it was, you know, from whether it was in the US, whether it was Asia, whether it was North America, um, in Canada, and, and whether it was Europe. And the challenge there was to unify all of these stores within these various locations and, and really address a localized need. When somebody's in the San Francisco airport, you know, they may not care that they're with DFS necessarily, but they do care that they're buying something from San Francisco or they want to take some, a souvenir from San Francisco home. Mm -hmm. So it was really about building a localized, you know, value proposition within this global system. So we worked with the airports, the individual airports. We brought them um, together in some respects under this program where we kind of tied everything together where we offered them a localized brand still under the platform of DFS, but it spoke to their needs about being localized and still we were able to have this global vocabulary within the brand. And you moved over within LVMH over to the wine and spirits world to head up global branding and creative from Moet Hennessy, the position you hold today. So what surprised you most about the wine and spirits industry when you went over there? It's a great question. I think what surprised me most was coming from fashion that and, and you know retail that wines and spirits is not so consumed with trend as fashion is. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, it, it's really about being more timeless than timely. And hence, it, it becomes more of an insular industry in some ways. However, my biggest learning probably was in the fact that the level of craft really exceeded my expectations um How so? you know at the uh, well i think you know at the end of the day I, I always say we're farmers at the end of the day in some ways right. you know we, we put something into the ground we we watch it grow we cultivate it we harvest it and then we we make a product out of it and um i, I think it's a fascinating process um i think the process in, is obviously much more organic than something going to a factory in some ways so you know, the, the wines and spirits um, industry is really not built on change all the time, like fashion or beauty, but it's built on being consistent in many ways. You fall in love with the product, you want that same product over and over and over again. So innovation within the industry primarily comes in the form of communication, packaging, partnerships, etc. But it doesn't come within the product changing all the time. So I, I, I you know, that was a big learning. But really the craft was the biggest learning. The idea that you literally put something into the ground 
and then you, you you watch it grow and then you make a product out of it and then you store it you know within a cellar for a number of years before it even the consumer even sees it or experiences it and LVMH is recognized for its decentralized management model as one of the keys to its success. You know, it allows its brands to operate autonomously, fostering quick customer understanding and innovation. So as the overarching creative and brand lead for Moet Hennessy, what is your role in partnering with the management and marketing teams at each of the Moet Hennessy's Maisons? It's a great question as well, because we have 26 different Maisons and we're a right. centralized function. Yeah. This function is, or this department that I that I started um, five years ago, um, I didn't have a predecessor. There was nobody there prior to me coming on board. And it was really a mandate of the CEO to form this department. It's interesting. It was met with somewhat of a resistance because the Maisons operated very independently prior to this department being established. However, what we had to enforce right away or what we had to socialize right away was that it was really about it wasn't about homogenizing the brands. It was about pulling the brands even further apart and really embracing their DNA and supporting them within that. So what the department does right now is we look at things either from a very tactical manner in helping the maisons with executing their, their videos or their campaigns or their content or whatever it may be, or we work on a very strategic level in two capacities. One capacity being kind of broken brands where they need to refine an audience or they need to refine their relevance within the market or with breakthrough brands that come through kind of our M&A department um, and are new to Moet Hennessy and need to be assimilated into the family. And if you look at the fashion industry, the creative director role for many years had a fairly simple job description to oversee the design and aesthetics of the brand with focus on product. However, the role has evolved over the years and has become much more amorphous. Today, creative directors are expected to shape a brand's entire presence, including the look and feel of fashion shows and marketing. So as a creative director in the wine and spirits industry, are you finding yourself wearing more hats in your role than you did five years ago when you started at Moet Hennessy? The role has definitely changed. I mean, it's significantly changed. Um, the role has to, is a lot more it's a lot more fast. It's a lot more agile. It's a lot more reactive, um, obviously with digital and virtual developments. But I think the role of a creative director um, used to be, you know, the, where you would form the trends and you would form the movements and you would kind of shout them down to the consumer um, in hopes that they would take, you know, respond to them. It's it's a different it's a different market now. It's a different landscape now. Um, in some ways, the consumers are their own brand. So I, I think within creative direction, it's really about partnering with the consumer. It's not just us forming these directions with autonomy. It's really about us collaborating with where the consumer's head is and finding out um, you know, what they respond to, what they react to versus you know, being so prescriptive. So it, it, it's it's more of a partnership now. And I, as I said earlier, I, I really believe that the consumers are their own brand in some ways, and we are there just to help them and support them and, and kind of be, um, you know, a partner within that. So it's definitely, it's definitely a, a new way to, um, to view creative direction. We've always looked at it holistically within Moet Hennessy. Um, it's, it's not something that's singular in its focus. So we've always worn many hats, you know, within my department alone, 
We've got creative and design. We've got production and project management. We've got content strategy. We've got community management. We've even taken on brand homes as part of the creative direction within Moet Hennessy as well, a new experience to, to the Maisons. So we've always worn a lot of hats, but it is being a lot more, we're a lot more agile than we used to be and a lot more reactive. We'll be right back after a quick break with more of my conversation with John Gerhardt. Bow Lake Kim, Rocky Shore. I will return once more. Yes, I will. Boom, diddy boom, boom. Boom, diddy boom, boom, boom. All right. The world's most beautiful paddle boards. Bow Lake. The water is calling. We're back with more from John Gerhardt. I want to talk about some of the rebranding and new product launches you've been heavily involved with at Moet Hennessy. Chandon is one of the leading brands of luxury sparkling wine. It's been around for like six decades and spans beyond France into wineries around the world. Argentina, Brazil, California, Australia, China, I believe. And in 2021, Chandon unveiled a new brand identity and refreshed packaging. Sparkling wine across all categories has been one of the major winners of post-pandemic drinking culture, primarily by millennials. Did this drive the whole rebranding effort? Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, it did. So when I came in um, in 2019, Chandal was in a bit of an identity funk um, and, and kind of living in the shadows of Champagne. Um, and the first thing that we did was try to understand how we could be more relevant. And the, and the, the primary step that we took was realizing that we need to stop apologizing for not being champagne and that there's, there's a big um, market for, to your point, for sparkling wine um, and it's owning who you are and not apologizing. And the second thing is um, I think it was, the brand was viewed as a bit fragmented because to your point, it had six wineries all over the world. And we realized, no, 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 that's not, that's not a disadvantage. It's actually an advantage mm -hmm. that we're this global brand within a sea of brands that are relatively local in their scope. So it may not be champagne, but it's the best sparkling wine there is on the market. And I think a sparkling wine, you have a greater opportunity in some ways to be younger in your approach. You know, to, you said it's a 60 year old, you know, brand. Um, we have brands that are 200 years old and plus. Right. So within Moet Hennessy, this is a young brand and being a sparkling wine and not having the rules and regulations sometimes that Champagne has, you can be a lot more democratic as well. Yes, it was about developing a younger clientele. Yes, it was about embracing what we deem to be maybe um, challenges as opportunities as well. And hence, we've developed this, this brand that has flourished, immensely flourished, it's a very friendly brand. It's a very youthful brand. It's not so academic in its, in its scope. And it's a very optimistic brand as well. Um, and when you take all those six cultures, you know, you've got a very diverse brand. And, and we kind of, we see that as a brand value within Chandon, that there is a great emphasis and a great priority towards diversity. So French vineyard Chateau Galoupe acquired by Moet Hennessy a few years ago. From what I understand, LVMH has been rehabilitating those vineyards and the protected woodland that adjoin them with the ambition of rebranding as the home of eco-friendly fine rosé. 
all contributing to LVMH's sustainability practices. Can you talk about this project and your involvement in the rebranding efforts? Gallupay was an acquisition, um, but has since become a bit of a lighthouse at Moet Hennessy. It's a crew classe from Provence. Um, that is an organic rosé right now on its way to becoming a biodynamic um, wine. And I think it's Gallupay is a great example of, of the relevance that we're creating within Moet Hennessy in many ways, that it's not just about the value of the product, but it's really about the values of the product as well. And they have very strong values at, at Gallupay to the point that um, in a sea of rosé, where it's really about judging the brand by the color, Gallupay is so strong in their ethics that they decided to do a brown bottle versus a clear bottle. Um, and within a brown bottle, obviously, you can't see the color of the rosé. But a brown bottle signifies that it's a lot more friendly in terms of the environment um, because there's less of a footprint against a brown bottle than a clear bottle. And also it's better for the consumer because with a brown bottle, you're not going to get light struck wine where with a clear bottle, you probably would, you, you, right. you have the chance of getting it. So I, I think it's, it's a very interesting wine in that it's, it has a lot of integrity and it's really leading the charge in terms of environmental or being responsible. Um, but I think there's also something interesting about Gallup in, in its provenance in that it's from Provence. And as we know, Provence is not necessarily the Provence that our parents knew. I mean, Provence is having a bit of a renaissance. And, and with designers like Jacques Mousse, who are, you know, fashion designer who's, you know, kind of heralding and championing um, Provence right now. It's not just about, you know, lavender and calico anymore. It, it, it's, it has a, a whole new kind of identity to it. And I think Gallup is part of that new identity within Provence. But also I should I should make a point that, you know, Gallup may be the lighthouse at Moet Hennessy in terms of responsibility or one of the lighthouses, but Moet Hennessy in general is making a huge push in terms of sustainability, responsibility, environmental friendliness as well, to the point that we have our own industry forum called Living Soils that addresses those very issues. I don't have to tell you that the wine and spirits sales have slowed down in the past year. The very high growth rate of the wine and spirits category experienced over the last two years finally caught up with itself and saw sales drop in 2023 and will likely continue to fight off challenges this year. This shift on top of a crowded marketplace makes the importance of having a well-defined set of brand values and crystal clear positioning even more critical. So how is Moet Hennessy reevaluating its creative approach for the times that we're living in? I think like any brand um, in 2024, you need to evaluate what's most relevant to the consumer. The way you communicate to the consumer, again, as I, I said earlier, it's, it's a lot more conversational than it used to be. And it's talking about things that really matter to them. I think it's also about serving up more innovation, um, product innovation and innovation that's responsible in terms of your packaging and in terms of your production. I think it's also about reinforcing your value prop perception. And, and, you know, if you're a luxury item, you it, it's important that you do that. It's really important that you stipulate, you know, this is why we are considered luxury. This is why these prices are so, you know, this is why, because there is this quality and this craftsmanship that goes into these products. I, I, I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's a very good question because I think at the end of the day, 
you know, there's a lot of skepticism around consumption right now um, and, and production in relation to consumption. I think that we have challenges, obviously, at Moen Hennessy in terms of the portrayal of alcohol right now and, and the, the ramifications, you know, that people see within health, possibly. But I also think we have advantages within that, you know, in that we make really beautiful product. And if you're going to consume less, consume better. If you're going to drink less, drink better. And, and we have beautiful products that are meant to be savored and experienced. So I think we need to talk about that. And I think we need to talk about the artistry and craft in our product that has withstood us, you know, for and, and done as well for the last 200 plus years also. And the evolving demographics of luxury consumers continue to shift towards a younger and more socially aware audience, while traditional luxury standards such as exceptional quality, inspirational creativity and more are still important to this new customer base. They also require the brands to support their generational values. How do the different Moet Hennessy houses, many of them, as you said before, are over 200 years old, to maintain a delicate balance between promoting their heritage and updating their brand to speak to a new generation of drinkers? I think there are a couple of factors. You know, as I said earlier, innovation. Innovation is really important and something that we really covet at Moet Hennessy. Um, I can give you a couple of, of examples on, on how we're staying relevant with innovation. That'd be great. You know, we, we just launched Chandon Garden Spritz last year, um, a varietal within Chandon, which is a maceration from Argentina. And it, it's a spritz that has half the sugar that other spritzes have, and it has no artificial color. And, you know, we know that people are, are rather concerned with what they're putting in their bodies these days. So the more that we can be friendly in our approach, the better it is. We have a tequila brand named Vulcan out of Mexico, obviously, um, that has no additives, you know, where other tequilas have additives as well. So I, I think we're looking at product first and foremost, but we're also, you know, coming back to, to your point, values, not just the value of the product, but the values of the brands and the responsible initiatives that they're taking whether it be production, whether it be farming, whether it be packaging. And I think also, you know, in a world obsessed with authenticity, um, you know, we're as authentic as you can get because, you know, these are 200-year-old brands. So I, I think that makes us, you know, sustainable and relevant at the same time, you know, especially to a new generation of drinkers. They're tried and true and tested. But we are staying on top of consumption habits and we start, you know, we, we adapt accordingly as well. It, it's obviously a big priority with us. And one of the more interesting luxury hospitality ventures that Moet Hennessy has been a part of is the opening of Cravant. What is the concept behind Cravant? Cravant um, is a great example of our innovation um, in that it's our first um, hospitality and retail venue. Um, under the umbrella of Moet Hennessy. And it's it's a great showcase for all of our portfolio. And our portfolio, as you know, is made up of a number of different um, wines and spirits from cognac, a big, you know, obviously um, presence with Hennessy and cognac, with champagnes, you know, the better champagnes of, in the market, Dom Perignon, Beauclicot, Moet Chandon, Krug, Renat, etc. Still wines that we have um, from all over the world. And then we have spirits and sparkling wine as well. So, Cravant allows us that opportunity to showcase the portfolio. Um, but Cravant existed before, before Moet Hennessy came on board in, in many ways and invested. 
Craval was initially a, a small bar in the 16th arrondissement, um, founded by a man named Frank Adou, who built this brand, um, and it's an interesting little story, but built this brand on this um, person named Arthur Craval, mm -hmm. who existed early in the 20th century, who was a poet and a boxer. Um, and he took this paradox of, um, you know, kind of the brute and the beauty and, and built this brand out of it. Um, this small little bar, as I said, in the 16th, we saw it, we liked it. We partnered with Franck and we've built this now bar, as you said, in the seventh arrondissement that, um, allows us to, um, to showcase our product in a much bigger and more experiential way than Franck had done in the 16th. The interesting thing about Cravant as well, and, and I was you know, um, part of the brand development, obviously, with Franck, um, is that it's a bar that, and not even a bar, it's an experience, really, um, that's kind of lost in time. It, it's, it's a fantastic experience. You must go next time you're in Paris. Absolutely. But um, just as it's, it's kind of old with a reference to Arthur Cravant in the early 20th century. It's very new in its approach as well. And it's these paradoxes that, that make it kind of magical. It, it's, re it's really a place for free spirits. And we kind of go back to that magic of the Saint-Germain neighborhood when it was for luminaries, art luminaries and literature luminaries. And we kind of recreated that with the spirit of Arthur Cravant now. And I was reading that actually sustainability built into the design and things from dead stock fabrics from some of the LVMH luxury houses. Yes, yes, yes. We've taken, we've worked with LVMH extensively on how we can refurbish, um, redesign, rehash um, existing materials and bring them in. I wanted to talk to you about creativity these days. The chief aim of creativity used to be inspiring an emotional response through imagination and human connection. Now it seems that algorithms and tech often sit between the creator and the audience, and it's become about playing the game or risking going undiscovered, which is influencing the brand's content. Many say that more brands and agencies have averse attitudes towards creative risk that strategies have become pretty formulaic, yielding uninspiring and underwhelming content. How do you feel about that? I have to say I disagree. I, I, I don't know that world. I really don't know that are world. You are you thinking about the from a luxury sector standpoint or just in general? I, I'm, as a consumer, I can't really speak to it. As as a creative director, I can speak to it. And, and, and it's kind of foreign to me. It's, there's nothing formulaic in my job. There's right. nothing formulaic. And... I'm not talking about you, but I'm seeing. I'm asking about what looking out there in the in in the sector, perhaps. You know what? I can only speak to it from my perspective, um, and my perspective is no risk. Is 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 a very um, it's an everyday word within Moet Hennessy right now. It's and and you know, if we were formulaic, we'd be doing luxury a disservice in many ways. Because at the end of the day, I need to connect on so many different levels with the consumer now. I need to connect with them on a cerebral level. I need to connect with them on a visceral level. I need to even connect with them on an ethical level. So I can't afford to have anything that is, is formulaic. My responsibility is to connect with them. Um, and, and in some ways, luxury bears even more of a responsibility. Because I, I think, you know, we need to connect with them where they're where we really ignite their imagination 
you know, when you're selling luxury, you're not selling something that's an everyday item. You're selling something that elicits a response. And the highest way that I can connect with them is through their imagination and, and getting them to use their imagination. So I, I think in response to your question, we don't, I, I can't afford to be formulaic in my approach. And I don't know if I'm seeing it in the marketplace. I think, you know, with all that's going on right now with AI and VR and AR and 3D and all of these things, I think people are probably taking on more risk than they have in many ways. So several months ago, you shared a presentation with a group of marketers titled Nine That Define Luxury. We don't need to go through all nine of them, but if you can share your overall point of view and perspective on how luxury brands can successfully entice their buyers and resonate with their audiences. I think luxury at the end of the day, first and foremost, you need to connect at an emotional level, as we know. Um, as I said, you're not buying a necessity. You're not buying something that does not elicit a response. So it, it's really about that connection. And that that's something that you know goes back to the genesis of luxury and applies to today as well. I think that luxury in 2024 and going forward bears a responsibility to the planet. And I think with privilege comes great responsibility. And I think that luxury needs to be a leader within bearing responsibility to, to the planet, to communities, to the consumer, et cetera. I think the interesting thing about luxury is that luxury was built on sustainability in many ways. Luxury was built on products. That, that's the whole point of luxury, is that it was built on products that lasted and, and matured and, and you know, stayed with you and were not disposable. And in many ways, you know, that's what we consider sustainable right now. So I, I think that luxury you know, needs to go back to its origins in many ways and, and, and reconfirm that they're doing that. I think luxury in 2024 doesn't always have a price tag necessarily as well. I think there's a misconception that it always has to be expensive. Um, you know, when you rent a remote cottage in Iceland, it may not be as expensive as a suite at the Four Seasons, but that doesn't say it's not luxury. Right. And I think luxury is, is, is not always saying you're luxury. I don't think you need to say you're luxury. And you would never say you're luxury to the consumer. It is just understood that you're luxury. So, John, you've been on a couple of sides of the business, the luxury fashion industry, now in the high-end wine and spirits industry. So what do you think high-end wines and spirits can learn from the luxury fashion world about creating luxury experiences? Yeah, I think it may be the contrary. I think that fashion can learn from wines and spirits. I think that in many ways, wines and spirits are ahead of fashion in terms of responsibility. I think that um, at the end of the day, we saw the consumer, you know, 10, 12, whatever years ago, say that they were more interested in experiences than they were in acquisition sometimes. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, wines and spirits is much more experiential than an acquisition, than, than a product. Um, there's a ceremony that goes with us. We celebrate milestones and occasions. So obviously we are more experiential in many ways. I think that um, we are beginning to create more tangible experiences. Um, it's not just about intangible. Um, 
and we're building brand homes. We just built a brand home and uh, or, or remodeled a brand home in, in California with Chandon. So I, I think that it's not just about consumables now. We're much more tangible. Um, I think within wines and spirits as well, that obviously there's more scarcity to our product levels than there is within fashion. And I think that's something probably fashion could learn from us. So I think that um, in many ways, fashion can learn more from wines and spirits hmm. than, than wines and spirits can learn from fashion. Maybe I should have a debate going, John. I'll find somebody um, in your position. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> that I'm would good be a to go. <laughs> I'm so good to go. So what projects at Moet Hennessy are you excited about in 2024, ones that you could talk about? I can talk about one um, because I just asked the CEO if I could talk about it. Great. Um, but we are looking at Moet and Chandon, um, and we're looking at how we can make the biggest champagne brand in our portfolio and the biggest champagne, truthfully, in the category, how we can make an icon even more iconic. Um, so that is my concentration, um, one of my concentrations for 2024 to see how we can even take it even further. So, John, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one single luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or any mobile service, anything that has mobile service that you can call somebody to get you off that island. It's just you on this island by yourself with one single luxury item. What would that be? luxury item B. So I've given this great thought, I have to tell you. <laughs> and I went from sunscreen to um, a tent to many different things. But I think I've decided that my one item would be a pair of Leica binoculars hmm. and my, the binoculars so they could aid me in getting off that island. John Gerhardt, Global Creative Director at Moet Hennessy. Thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was really a pleasure. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time. <laughs>